There's a lake near where I grew up. Some of y'all have have been there, Lake Martin. If you've been to Lake Martin, almost certainly somebody took you to one of its landmarks, uh, Chimney Rock. Growing up, I can remember going there as a kid. Very first time we ever made it, I remember seeing the other kids, some of them about my age, some of them younger than me, some of them older, all of them climbing up Chimney Rock, finding their handholds and jumping off. They fell like, you know, it seemed like it took them forever. I remember being so impressed and so incredibly awed by their bravery. As a kid, I hated heights. And I saw those kids and I thought, I want to be cool like that. So I swam to the rock and I climbed up the slippery wet rocks. And I remember getting to the top. I didn't go to the highest part of Chimney Rock. If you've been there, it's way too high. People get hurt there. I went to the next tier down. It's about 30 feet. And when I got to the top of it, I discovered that 30 feet is about four times taller from the top of it than it is from down in the water. I remember easing my eyes over the edge, and I remember that seeking feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I remember looking back at the walk I had just climbed to see if there was any way I could scramble back down. And I remember realizing that my only goal for my young life had suddenly become to get myself out of this stupid idea I'd gotten myself into. I remember those feelings as if they were just a few years ago because they were. Some 25 years after I first jumped off of Chimney Rock, I found myself back there at the lake with my family for the summer, and I rediscovered that old lead weight in my stomach. When we pulled up to Chimney Rock with our family that summer, I had to see if the magic was still there. So I put on my life jacket and I jumped in the water swam to the shore, and I started my climb upwards. Jennifer was right behind me. She had never jumped off Chimney Rock before. And so we made the climb together. And when we got to the top, we looked down and we looked at each other. And one of the perks of being in our second decade of marriage to each other is that we are fluent in speaking to one another without words, with just our eyes. And as we looked down from Chimney Rock and then we looked into each other's eyes, we were saying the exact same thing to each other at the exact same time. We were saying, we've made a huge mistake. Of course, we couldn't back out. There were boats all around just watching us as we were standing there. And I knew in my head that it would actually be safer to jump than to try and climb backwards down those slippery and treacherous rocks. Not to mention there were a line of kids coming up. Our own kids were cheering us on from the boat. Our own kids, by the way, who were too scared to jump off the rock themselves. Our own kids who wouldn't jump off the boat that summer. Our kids who ran away from a two-foot drop from the boat to the water as if it was the gateway into the abyss. These same kids are screaming at us that they are so proud of us. And that they know we can do it. And then one of them yells, come on already. Why don't you just jump? Eventually, Jennifer and I realized that we are never going to be excited about this. So there's nothing left to do but jump. And we count one, two, three, and we go. Falling happens so much faster when it's happening to you rather than somebody else. Two seconds later, we are in the water and the bubbles are coming up all around us and the feeling of exhilaration has replaced that lead weight that was in my stomach. 
And I look around and I think, this is awesome. And I have conquered my fears and I've done an amazing thing. And I really hope that somebody got the full glory of it on video, preferably in slow-mo so that the full majesty of it is captured. And then I look back and there's a third grader jumping off right behind me. (laughs) He's jumping like it's not a thing. And I realize I've made this huge, huge deal out of something that hundreds of people do every summer, something this kid has gotten entirely used to. It is not really that big a deal. In that moment, I am back in eighth grade in front of the football coach slash history teacher as our class came to him all excited because we had done the assignment he asked for and he looked at us and he said, so what, do you want a cookie? When I was younger, I got the point and I was a little intimidated by his sarcastic manner. But these days, especially now that I've got kids of my own, actually, yeah, I do. I do want a cookie. There are some days I would really love a few extra cookies. There are days, let's be honest, more than a few, that I give myself a few extra cookies. That's the best part of being an adult, giving myself cookies just for doing what I was supposed to do. Because I know now more than I did back then not to take for granted that I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Every morning we get up, we get the kids breakfast, we take them to school, but only after we have exhausted all the other options. There are days when I look over at Jennifer and I say, how about if the kids just skip school today? How about if we just call in tired? There are days when just getting through that daily routine seems like way more than I would ever choose to do. But then I start running through the options and realize there's not much choice, is there? I can't really call in tired to the school. There comes a point every day when we realize that something's got to happen and we've got to be the ones to make it happen. We don't deserve a cookie for it. It is no great act of heroism. If there was anything else I could do, I would. But there's not. So I jump into the day. And the reason I jump is not because God sends a groundswell of emotion or inspiring music to be the soundtrack of my life. And it's not because I have some sense of great exhilaration or adventure. The reason I jump into the day is because there's folks behind me and there's folks waiting on me and there's folks watching me. And the truth is I've exhausted all the other options. And Jesus tells his disciples, if your brother comes to you seven times in a day, having offended you or having done you wrong in any way. And if your brother says to you seven times, I am changing my ways, Jesus says, you must forgive him. The disciples hear this and they say, how can that be possible? Jesus, do you know what you are asking of us? That is an awfully big leap of faith you want us to make. What kind of heroes do you take us for? Lord, if this is what you would ask of us, you better do something, Lord. Lord, increase our faith, they said. But Jesus makes it clear. He's not asking them to do anything heroic. He's not asking for a tremendous feat of faith. Jesus commands them to forgive because there's no other option. Jesus knows that things that cause people to trip and fall into sin must happen. 
When he says that, as it's written in the Greek, there's a double negative for emphasis. It is impossible for you not to sin, not to fall into scandals and failures, but woe to you through whom they come. The consequences of sin, they are real, and we can't ignore them. But the inevitability of sin is real too. We can't avoid it. And if we are going to stick it out with God and with each other, we are going to sin. And we've got to deal with the sin that comes between us. We've got to forgive. We aren't heroes for forgiving. We don't deserve a cookie. We've just exhausted all the other options. There's no other way for us to be together with God and with one another. Now I want to be real clear on what forgiveness is. Forgiveness doesn't mean acting as if nothing ever happened. It doesn't mean that when someone breaks trust with you, that you act as if the offense never happened. And forgiveness doesn't mean that everything goes back to the way it was before necessarily. Forgiveness is nothing more, but it is also nothing less than relinquishing your claim against the one who hurt you. We believe in a God who has every possible claim against us. We believe that in Jesus, God was exhausting every possible option for saving us. In Jesus, God taught us the way and healed us. In Jesus, God gave us an example of how to live and how to pray and how to be right with God. And when the positive example didn't work, then Jesus showed us God's anger and frustration when he cleared out the temple, but none of that would win us over. And when God had offered us the very best of who we could be, we offered God our worst in return. We killed God. We nailed him to a cross. And it was our sinful nature that led humanity to take the very word made flesh and say to it, no thanks. At that point, what options did God have for salvaging a relationship with us? How could God be in relationship with us if we would not accept God? God could have held on to his claim against us, could have nursed his own anger against us, and that would have ended us. God could have just given up, but that would have ended us too. Our very breath comes to us by the grace of God. Our very existence depends upon God's relationship with us, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. But every offer God made to us was rejected and Jesus had every possible claim against us. But God cared more about us than his own rights. As we were rejecting God, there was only one possible way for God to keep the door of salvation open. And Christ looked down from the cross at the end, at the crowd that demanded his death. And he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now, as it turns out, that didn't change everybody's hearts and minds when he said that. Not everybody understood the full horror and calamity of what they were doing to Jesus. Being forgiven doesn't mean that everyone will suddenly be in a right relationship with God. It doesn't mean that these people had put aside their pain and their fear and their hate and everything else that leads any of us to reject Jesus. All that forgiveness means is that we did the very worst that we could to God 
and God did not hold it against us. Every so often, someone will come to me and they will say, can God really forgive this awful thing that I've done? And the witness of the cross is that God already has. While we were still sinning, God forgave us. It is finished. It's done. That doesn't mean everything's okay. Doesn't mean that we are fully restored into our right relationship with God. Just because you've been forgiven doesn't mean, among other things, that you've accepted that forgiveness. Have you ever been forgiven of something that you didn't want to be forgiven for? Do you know how much that stinks? Let me tell you, there is nothing that gets my pride up more than when someone tells me, it's okay, I forgive you. And I'm convinced I haven't done anything wrong. It may be that you're convinced you don't need forgiveness. Well, like it or not, that's the word I have for you today. You are forgiven. God isn't willing to let your pride have the last word. And so God has already done the only thing there is to be done. Your sins are forgiven. And when we can accept that, then we forgive too. Jesus gives the disciples a command and we respond by saying, come on, Jesus, that is too much. You are asking for a miracle. Forgive seven times a day at the very least. Can I get a cookie for it? And if we had eyes to see, we would realize that forgiveness is the only option left. When we've exhausted our ability to pretend that we are perfect, when we've exhausted our ability to pretend that our sins aren't really hurting anyone, when we've thought a thousand times, I wish I could go back and start all over, and when we've realized a thousand times that we can't, when we've exhausted all our other options, forgiveness is the only thing left to give forgiveness and to accept it. We spend so much of our life asking for the power to do something heroic when God is really just asking us to do the only thing that's left. And if we do, it just might lead to something exhilarating. The day after watching her parents take the only possible way down from Chimney Rock, one of our kids said that she wanted to jump off the boat. By summer's end, she was jumping off docks and boats. We'd go up to Florala and the, the lake there, and she would just spend all day jumping into the water. And every time she did, I would laugh at the wonder of it. To see her becoming more human, more fully who God made her to be. There will come a day when none of our kids can think of any other way to get into the water from a boat except to jump in. There will come a day when they take it for granted. It's what they're supposed to do. How else would you do it? They won't look for a cookie. They'll move on, move forward to diving. Maybe some of them will learn the flips their dads never mastered. Maybe one day they'll climb a slippery cliff and discover that it's taller from the top than it was from the bottom, and they will jump anyway. Just jumping from a boat will seem like the most obvious thing in the world. What other option is there? Forgiveness is the only starting point. It is the only beginning. 
but it's only the beginning. You can choose it now or wait till you've exhausted your anger, your pride, or your self-righteousness. But once you get around to forgiving, I can't promise anyone's going to give you a cookie or pat you on the back for it. But you will at least be more truly human, which is to say, you will bear the image of God, the one who made you what you were meant to be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.